And we're live. Um, brothers, thrilled to be back with both of you. Uh, Gary, thrilled to be here with you, brother. David, thrilled to be with you. Happy Lent to all of you all. How are y'all doing? Gary, first, you, brother, how have you been? How's everything going on your end? Doing great. Working on some book manuscripts and yep. uh, just having a lot of fun. Awesome. Brother David, how have you been, my friend? What is new with you? Yeah, I've been busy uh, publishing some articles, medical articles <laughs> recently, yep. but now now I'm uh, working, working really hard on new material for the channel. So everybody, uh, you will be excited about it, I believe. I'm not going to tell you the topic right now, <laughs> but as soon as it will be ready, uh, our audience will enjoy it, I believe so. I agree. Yeah, I know uh, a little bit of what you're working on. I think that the audience are going to be really, really thrilled with it. And, you I know, today's wait. show, uh, yeah, I can't wait either. And in fact, uh, because I'm so excited, I said, you know what? We got to do a round table. We got to get together again and talk. But, um, you know, I, I had it in my mind for a bit, you know, digging in and diving into the book of Revelation, talking to a lot of different people, Protestants, Orthodox, and getting a variety of answers from a lot of different people that, as you as you gentlemen know, uh, I do a lot of work when it comes to Mariology. So diving into the book of Revelation, I, you know, I dug into a lot of Protestant commentaries and going to the first-hand material, not merely second or third-hand sources, and, and just really shocked at the treatment of the book of Revelation early on by the Reformers. And I think that yet again, it, it we come to a clear issue within protestantism when it comes to this book and we'll talk about it in, in 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 a moment but you know before we even get to that i want to emphasize one very important point <clears throat> when it comes to the apocalypse of saint john you look in the early church and every time the church gathered in council and i'm gonna i i am of the persuasion that i think uh, rome 382 was an actual council so I'm going to say Rome 382, Hippo Carthage 393, 397. You're going to find every time that the apocalypse of St. John, uh, the Revelation, the book of Revelation is present there. Uh, so I, we're rec we recognize that it was perhaps took a little time, little bit of time to get off, to get on its feet in, in certain early fathers, present in all of those early councils. And then, of course, present once we talk about the ecumenical councils, but not so clear when it comes to the world of Protestantism. Uh, and we'll look at a few slides in just a moment. But Gary, perhaps I'd like to get your thoughts first. When it comes to the apocalypse, what are, what are your thoughts when it comes to that and the early church? Do you, you think it was a little bit of a checkered history for it to kind, kind of get get its legs and really become favorable in the early church? Or do you think it, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, well, you know, it's interesting. That was the same topic that I uh, talked about on the Sunrise Morning Show uh, yesterday. Wow. Uh, yeah, we're going through my book. Uh, I'll give a shameless plug, uh, Gospel Truth, right, by Mace Road Press. Great book. And and every week I'm going on there. And uh, so this is the EWTM program. You probably could listen to it if you want to. But we're going into false positives and false negatives on the canon. And the false positive we talked about the week before was First Clement, right? Because uh, that shows up on some canonical list that it seems to have been accepted as canonical in the Church mm -hmm. of Corinth. But my false negative is Revelation. And, you know, just really quick, everybody who has read the New Testament knows 
the book of Revelation is a very odd bird, right? <laughs> it's the only book there that's in this apocalyptic genre. Yep. So I think that gives the antecedent, you know, people are disinclined to accept it because it's so strange. But, you know, historically, as you know, the Montanist heresy, the Montanists loved uh, Revelation. Right. And they were also a very odd bird in the early church. Uh, and so, yeah, so the, the Eastern Church uh, shied away from it just because it was so enthusiastically embraced by the, the Montanists. So it does have a bit of a checkered past, but only in certain sections of the church, right? Yeah. Not as the church as a whole. Yeah, very, very good point there. That I, and I, I agree. I think that you lay that out perfectly. And in fact, I I found very odd comments from the era of the reformers and, and afterwards, um, really to where I think that they they don't give Jerome a fair shake, uh, claiming that Jerome was very, uh, very unfavorable towards Revelation in his comments. I didn't find that. And I looked through very meticulously through the corpus of Jerome. I think Jerome is very clear that the book is a very complex book. And difficult to understand, but who who wouldn't uh, agree with that? I agree with that. Even the early commentaries on the book of Revelation agree on that particular point. Uh, David, perhaps your thoughts on this, because what, what the way that I, and you gentlemen, brothers can feel free to tell me, William, well, you know what? I'm not totally on board with that. But in my opinion, looking in the early church, by the time the church said we need to gather, whether it be local council or ecumenical, you don't find revelation absent other than those spurious canons people like to bring up uh, uh you don't find it absent you find it present all the time thus to me i find it problematic that as we'll see in a moment that when you get to the time of the reformation uh the book is not only at times questioned but flat out rejected and that to me is problematic because on the basis of what then what is your authority then in scripture alone, are you coming to the to your conclusion of the canon? I mean, really, to me, it ultimately highlights the problems of sola scriptura because I am very well aware of the way modern day Protestants try to make a spin on scripture alone. Look, we they say, well, you know what? We have no problem with tradition. Uh, sola scriptura is not about, but the Bible being the only authority. But the ultimate authority, but then you read Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and all those guys, and they don't say what these modern-day Protestants are saying. Sola means only. Let's be very clear. It means only. It means scripture alone. Let's be very clear about that. And it doesn't matter how you try and fluff it. So we're going to encounter a problem in a moment when we put the slides up to show you all. But David, I'd love to get your thoughts. On, what are your thoughts on, on, the, on the Apocalypse of St. John? Yeah, certainly. There's a very early attestation in the church. And... <clears throat> I think when sometimes the church was like uh, careful with it, uh, especially due to the heretics. Some of them yeah. really like were embracing a lot of these apocalyptic uh, literature, and you know, even going outside of the canon, uh, using all different uh, sources like this. So yeah, one can understand the careful approach sometimes to this book, and. Uh, right, of course, sometimes you see some reservations towards it. But at the end of the day, in the whole, as you said, William, uh, or uh, Gary, uh, the whole church basically embraced it. And it was really like some regional, uh, 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 it's a regional matter when, when some church fathers might have been careful, right? And even those figures, like, for example, Amphilochius, who, who states that um, 
many of them uh, reject the re revelation, but basically he was not holding to his this list, right? So, uh, right. which he presents. So he himself would have, would have embraced it, I think, for sure. Yeah, very, very good point. I think that was, that was a great point that you make there. Now, we were we talked about it uh, uh, briefly. We were talking about uh, multiple of these local councils. Now, uh, I am of the belief, and, and I'd love to, before we go forward, get your thoughts, Gary and, and, um, and David. <clears throat> I, I am of the persuasion, I think, that from what I have read and, and, and scholarship, uh, I think that Rome definitely was, a, was an actual council, Council of Rome 382. I'd like to get your thoughts, Gary. Gary, do you have any thoughts on that? Are you, are you just pretty much, you know what, I'm agnostic to that. What are your thoughts on that? In regards to what? Into whether or not the Council of Rome in 382 was an actual council. Oh, um, yeah, I'm kind of agnostic. I, I yeah. think there was a council, okay. but whether uh, the decree of Damasus was part of that council, okay, um, I'm not sure. Gotcha, gotcha. But as far as I know, there, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, scholarship is of the persuasion that that list is indeed from Damasus. There's no question whether or not that's, uh, there, that is authentic or not. Is that correct? Yeah, as far as I know, yes. Wonderful, wonderful. David, your thoughts. I'd love to, to get your thoughts because I think from what I've read and what I've studied, uh, I lean mo much more. And, and you know, I've, I've gone the other route before, but now I'm firmly leaning much more towards believing it, it really was a council. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, there certainly was a council in that uh, in that era. Uh, right. Jerome testifies to it, certainly. Uh, so the question is whether the list was discussed uh, on that council. And... Uh, Right, I mean, scholarship is divided, uh, but uh, nevertheless, I just don't know why would someone bring up or like make up, you know, a list uh, attributed to Damasus when you have right next to it, just, you know, not even almost, a, or it's just a decade later, yeah. you have Hippo, and then you have the other councils of Carthage. So it really doesn't make sense to make up a new list just a decade earlier. So I'm leaning also towards the uh, uh, towards the opinion that uh, there was an actual council, yeah, that yeah. dealt with the list. Yeah, great, great, great points. Now, what we've got here on the screen, as people know, we alluded to it earlier. We talked about Hippo, Carthage, uh, Rome 3D2. And of course, there are others. But the reason we, we want to show you these images to show you primarily how you've got the book of Revelation present here. So here you've got Revelation under the New Testament list in Hippo 393. Then you look at Carthage. You look at Carthage, it's the of Carthage. You have, you go downwards, you have it right there, the Revelation of John. So the Apocalypse of St. John, present in every one of these early church gatherings. Now, we're very clear. These are early councils that were not ecumenical, local, but of course, later on became very important when ecumenical councils did gather and did discuss them. So present here as well. And then, of course, we go here and multiple images. This, this text is from uh, the list of Damasus. And you can see that we get to right around here where you've got that right there. Likewise, the Apocalypse of John, one book, Acts of the Apostles, and it goes onward. So <clears throat> every one of these gatherings in the early church includes the Apocalypse of St. John. And we, I saw a comment what a great one, and I'll, I'll put it up forward in a bit, in a moment, because it does get to the heart of the issue of what we're looking at. 
Because then you get to the time of Luther, 1522. And very, this is a famous preface. We want to be fair because I've got a, a good amount of Lutheran friends and I have a, a couple of Lutheran scholars that say, William, uh, be fair. Don't only show the 1522 preface, so show the 1531. We're going to be fair. My opinion on the problem within Protestantism does not change. And, and gentlemen here, I've shared these slides with you already. Uh, and, and I think that it's no, you all are no stranger to my opinion, and you all share it with me, that Luther very often flip-flops. I mean, we see that in his belief uh, initially and in purgatory, and then later on in his disavowal of purgatorio. So Luther's uh, theology undergoes an evolution um, over and over. But uh, does it undergo an evolution to the point where he retracts these statements against the apocalypse of St. John? And we'll, we will examine that later. But let me read them and get your thoughts, uh, gentlemen. It's preface to Revelation 1522. Now, I want to be careful in noting he did not provide a commentary of the book of Revelation here in 1522. It took quite a while for a commentary on the book of Revelation a Reformation era one to appear. It took several years because people, they realized Luther had incredibly unfavorable view, views towards the apocalypse and they didn't want to anger Lord Luther. Uh, so writing a commentary indicated a positive reception of it. And very early on, they knew Luther did not do this in a positive way. So uh, they hesitated in providing a commentary. By the way, those words come from Lutheran scholars, not from myself, not from my own opinion. But Luther says, about this book of the Revelation of John, I leave everyone free to hold his opinions. I would not have anyone bound to my opinion or judgment. I say what I feel. I miss more than one thing in this book, and it makes me consider it to be neither apostolic nor prophetic. And I want to pause right there, because if we judge whether or not a book is apostolic and prophetic by the way we got through. If I've got a grumbling in my belly and I don't feel good about a certain book, and that makes me think, well, it's neither apostolic nor prophetic. To me, brothers, I find that to be incredibly problematic. Gary, I'd love to get your thoughts first. Yeah, that one really struck me because yeah. you can see where he makes himself the norm of what is apostolic or prophetic, right? And if I'm reading this correctly in English is what's there. I don't know, is it Latin or German? German. Yeah. Um, I believe, yeah. Then, it, you know, I missed more than one thing in this book. And it, so it must be him missing more than one thing in the book, makes me consider it to be neither. So he's the, he's the norm. He's the standard. So yeah. if Luther doesn't get it, uh, then it's not apostolic, which is a little different than, like, how he presents this elsewhere. Right, where it's yeah. preaching Christ. If I hear Christ being preached, it's apostolic. But yeah. this one's like the norm is really his capacity to understand a book. Yeah, which is odd. You know, I found yeah. it odd. And and you know, to to give Luther a fair shake, uh, you know, I I went to multiple Lutheran scholars. Uh, I even spoke with one of them, and I I went through numerous reform reformation commentaries to to, to kind of get an idea. Okay, well. In my opinion, uh, I find it to be incredibly problematic. Maybe I'm looking at it with Catholic lenses. I want to be as fair as can be because here at the Apocrypha Apocalypse, we present top-notch scholarly work that we do. We take time to present it to you, the audience, and we want to give you the information as fair as can be. 
And there's really no way around it to me. To me, this is problematic. D David, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, it reminds me of someone who said, you know, a canonical book has to meet these three godly criteria. <laughs> yep. And the question is, who makes up these criteria, you know? Mm -hmm. Because Luther evidently made up his own criteria. So, but who, tell, who tells you what are these criteria? You know, it's, it's really a subjective thing to decide. And just because he had this uh, feeling, this bad feeling from the apocalypse, I mean, so so what? That that feelings are not going to be decisive on this. So yeah, that's probably yeah. all I can say. And you you do bring up a very good point there. And I think that uh, ultimately the other problem we encounter is very often in his dialogue uh, with Johann Eck and anybody else he dialogued with Luther. Luther liked to hearken to the fathers, and at, at times he liked to hearken to the great Augustine, but Augustine never held these kinds of reservations for, for the apocalypse in St. John. And I find it very, very odd that we were dealing with uh, Luther, who one of his badges of honor for him that he'd bring up often is that he, he was an Augustinian monk, and he was uh, not only that, but he, he held high honor. Yet uh, Augustine, yet, yet famously Luther departed from Augustine many times this yet another area and, and you know he goes onward and his words are quite powerful he says first and foremost the apostles do not deal with visions but prophesy in clear and plain words as do peter and paul and christ in the gospel for it befits the apostolic office to speak clearly of christ and his deeds without images and visions moreover there is no prophet in the old testament to say anything of the new who deals so exclusively with visions and images. For myself, I think it approximates the fourth book of Esdras. I can in no way detect that the Holy Spirit produced it. That's amazing because if we're going to be going by whether or not we get the feeling that the Holy Spirit produced a book, well, then we arrive at the doorstep of ultimately we are our own authority and we are our own authority in a very dangerous way because all kinds of factions you know well i was going to say all kinds of factions can be created because of this well they were they have been they have popped up because of this kind of ideology but then why is in my opinion you've got later reformers francois lambert and others well why is their burning in the belly and their feeling of the Holy Spirit? Well, is that more authoritative than Luther's? Because Luther says, I cannot detect that it was produced by the Holy Spirit. So you come down to the point and you come to the table, who's got the better burning in the belly? Which one is the authoritative one? And the lack of authority, the lack of having that authoritative church that was founded by Christ comes right front and center and becomes a massive problem. We can see it right here. And, if, and I saw a very interesting comment. I want to put it up. Uh, and I agree with the brother here, Michael Oakland. If any book of the New Testament cries out for an authoritative magisterium, it is the book of Revelation. And I agree with you there, uh, Michael. I totally agree. Uh, maybe we can go uh, a different order this time. Uh, David, like to get your thoughts and then Gary. Yeah, I think uh, also Luther is a bit inconsistent here because I think the the reason why he compares it to the <clears throat> apocalypse of Esdras or the forward book of Esdras is uh, yeah. the reason why uh, particularly is the apocalyptic uh, nature yeah? Uh, yeah but if we look into the old testament um 
scholars usually point out that even the book of Daniel belongs into the apocalyptic literature. Right. Yeah. So I'm not sure why, why <laughs> is he just comparing it to fourth Ezra's? I'm not really sure, but okay. <laughs> I think I leave it right there. Yeah. Good point there. Good point. Gary, your, your thoughts. Yeah. I was a little shocked that he, he said that no prophet of the old Testament did so because scholars see revelation as based largely on the book of Ezekiel. No doubt. And mm -hmm. Ezekiel certainly is apocalyptic. Uh, right. So that that's shocking to me that he even says uh, the old Testament, like I, I can see where he would say it's weird with the new, you know, fourth Ezra, by the way, is a book that Luther didn't even count among the apocrypha. Right. right? That's not part of his books. Um, yep. So yeah, that's a pretty shocking statement. No, I, I, I totally agree. And I think I would I would even add that uh, we have some apocalyptic elements in the book of Daniel as well. Multiple mm -hmm. fathers recognize yeah. that as well. So, uh, you know, hey, there's even elements quoted in the book of Daniel from the book of Daniel, clearly carried over and quoted in the apocalypse of St. John. So, uh, you know, a number of problems here that I find here in, in Luther's statements. And, you know, <laughs> really, he goes onward to say, moreover, he seems to me to be going much too far when he comment, commends his own book so highly. Indeed, more than any of the other sacred books do, though they are much more important and threatens that if anyone takes away anything from it, God will take away from him. Again, they are supposed to be blessed who keep what is written in this book, and yet no one knows what that is to say nothing of keeping it. This is the same just as if we did not have the book at all, and there are many far better books available for us to keep. Many of the fathers also rejected this book a long time ago. I want to touch upon that because I think Luther's exaggerating that point there. Many of the fathers also rejected this book a long time ago, although St. Jerome, to be sure, refers to it in an, in an exalted terms and says that it is above all praise and that there are as many mysteries in it as words. Still, Jerome cannot prove this at all and his praise at numerous places is too generous. So, uh, you know, many of the fathers rejecting this. David, your thoughts on that? I'm pretty shocked he's appealing to Jerome. Uh, I mean, sorry, uh, that he's criticizing Jerome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's, right. it's uh, Jerome himself who will, he will appeal to when he's going to reject the Deuterocanon. Mm -hmm. In this case, Jerome is correct, right? When it right. comes to Revelation, he is wrong. So. Again, so why 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 the double standard? I I really don't understand this. Yeah, Gary, let me ask you something, Gary. You know, in my opinion, it really comes down to whether or not the authority of Luther wants it to be uh, apostolic and, and canonical, and whether or not it it is does in his mind. Because you're reading all of the preface here, and Luther, even though Luther was very well aware of those councils, Hippo and Carthage, being an Augustinian monk, he had to have been, uh, he does not make any mention of them at all. Rather, he will talk about, well, many of the fathers rejected this. And then the Jerome, the great Jerome that he always holds as a standard, all of a sudden says that, hey, Jerome cannot prove this. And he's too generous. You know, Gary, that really is, you know, yet another Luther flip-flop. What would you say? Yeah, and Andreas Karlstad noticed that, that, when it came to the Old Testament, Luther is appealing to Jerome as kind of like a infallible figure on the canon. But when it came to the New Testament, he departs from Jerome. 
And uh, Karlstad uh, saw that inconsistency, and uh, that was part of many reasons why they they kind of had a falling out. You know, yeah. also, guys, let me point out, it's interesting here, Luther, apparently as one of his godly criteria, is that there cannot be any errors, and apparently he sees an error here in Revelation yep. Yep. that is commanding us to follow the book, yet you can't keep the book because it doesn't have any precepts. Good yeah. point. That's a really good point, Gary. I had not, I had not thought about that. A very, very good point there. And the one thing, and, and I want to be very clear for the audience that may be wondering uh, if you barely tuned in, we will read the 1530 preface later on. We recognize Luther did modify certain things, but my opinion is going to be very clearly that Luther never does walk back these statements. Does Luther show a little bit more favorable position towards the apocalypse? Sure he does, but uh, by and large, Luther will never walk back any of these comments. And according to many Reformation scholars, Luther felt the pressure because commentaries began to come out. 1522, Luther outright doesn't want to provide a commentary and doesn't provide a commentary on it. And in 1530, for the audience wondering is preface, I want to be clear, even in 1530, Luther doesn't give us a voluminous commentary. He rushes to Revelation, giving brief commentaries, very, very brief, not detailed in any way at all. But we go onward, and uh, let's finish reading what Luther says in his 1522 uh, preface. Go ahead, brother. I, if I can just comment on the fathers. Definitely. Uh, Definitely. I'm not sure. You know, When I was reading uh, Martin Chemnitz, I think he brought up uh, Eusebius. Uh, right. yeah. that 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 some people reject Revelation among other You're books. Correct. However, not only Revelation. Watch out. Okay, there are. <laughs> it's yeah. not just Revelation. There are many other books that are uh, present in these. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so Eusebius, and um, I know about them. Philokius, and um, and I really don't know many of them. I mean, who who are those many? I, really I, from sure. what I remember, and Gary, maybe Gary, maybe you can correct me. Off the top of my head, I have Amphilochius, pseudonymous canon, which we won't talk about. Right. Uh, and if I'm correct, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, Gary, I might be wrong there. You two can correct me. I think uh, so. And maybe Gregory of Nancy. Yeah, 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 Cyril. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, but, but the, yeah, nevertheless, yeah. I think, nevertheless, I think all these fathers who mentioned that some people, like uh, reject these books, they themselves did not reject it. That's the most right. important thing. So right, right. When, yeah, when, yeah. He, when he's talking about fathers, he should be talking about fathers, not like, you know, random people who we don't know nothing about. No doubt, because even, good point, David, because to be clear, even Eusebius, uh, uh, he viewed it favorably. He even provides a, a very <coughs> early Marian reading of Apocalypse chapter 12. So that is a very, very good point there that I think that people tend to, uh, to not realize. Uh, Gary, uh, any particular thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I'm just doing a quick look up to see if I could find out about Cyril. Okay. Oh. Yeah, please. I, I, off the top of my head, I might I might have to amend that and say that he merely didn't include it, but I, as, I don't recall him having harsh language towards the book of Revelation. I could be incorrect there, though. But as Gary does look that up, let me finish reading that. Finally, let everyone think of it as his own spirit leads him. Look at that. So book is canonical and prophetic and, uh, and, uh, and apostolic, 
depending on how your own spirit leads you. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book. For me, this is reason enough not to think highly of it. Christ is neither taught nor known in it, but to teach Christ, this is a thing which an apostle is bound above all else to do. As Christ says, you shall be my witnesses. Therefore, I stick to the books which present Christ to me clearly and purely. So very negative, very negative out view. Does that change later? Um, we're going to show you that even though a lot of his language does change, Luther very clearly does not change his particular doubts as to certain elements of the book, despite talking much more favorably about almost a decade later. But it doesn't end there. You got problems within Protestantism because Zwingli, the Swiss reformer, says the book of Revelation is not a book of the Bible. With the apocalypse, and by the way, this is an, it's a preface to it. With the apocalypse, we have no concern for it is not a biblical book. The apocalypse has no savor of the mouth or mind of John. I can, if I so will, reject its testimonies. This is powerful language for today for Protestants who hold the scripture alone and every Protestant that I am aware of are going to have the book of Revelation in their Bible. And at the end of the day, when so many reformers either avoided it or flat out rejected it, uh, I'd like to ask our Protestant friends, hey, uh, on the basis of what is, is the apocalypse of St. John canonical in your mind? You know, this to me produces a, 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 a big problem. Okay, Gary, Gary made a great point. Gary, let me ask you. You got Cyril of Jerusalem and Gregory Nazianzus omitting it. As far as you're aware, uh, would you agree that they don't make negative comments towards it, though? What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I never really looked into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, all I know is that both their lists omitted. In fact, uh, mm -hmm. what's weird is uh, Gregory actually places the Pauline epistles after Jude. Oh, <laughs> Wow, I hadn't so, noticed that. Very weird. Yeah. Yeah. David, your your particular thoughts? On Cyril and uh, Gregory? Yeah, and that and maybe even on Zwingli here. Oh, sorry. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is just uh, terrible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, no. Who of the Protestants would agree with him today? You know, no. I think no one. No. I've, uh, yeah. And the, and you make, uh, you make a really good point. I mean, really, we have to question What's the basis of including revelation to the canon when it comes to the protest protestants? Yeah. Because you know, uh, if you, for example, bring up scholars like Michael Kruger, for example, okay, mm -hmm. like he will push very hard. He will try very hard, you know, just to, mm, just prove it. Yeah, it was there, and <laughs> we we must have it. But unfortunately. Uh, when we look at these reformers, they are very, they outright rejected it. Outright. Yeah, yeah no doubt. And and you're talking and they, about... These very yeah. dumb people, you know, Swingley, Luther, I mean, they were learned people. And they very. were dumb, right? David, that is the point. In fact, you took the words out of my mouth. You've got, uh, we're not bringing up any random names of the Reformation. We're bringing up uh, pillars of the Reformation. Right. And they flat out, flat out deny uh the, the the book being canonical. And I mean, Zwingli's language, you know, Zwingli's not playing around. He just tells you flat out, it's not a book of the Bible, you know? 
that's that's powerful uh, and you know problematic language uh, gary but perhaps your thoughts gary were you aware because i was aware of luther's powerful comments i before i began researching for the show i was not aware of zwingli actually having said that or were you already aware of that no no that's new to me yeah and yeah the, you know they want to move the issue of the canon to issue of for the new testament canon authorship that if we could establish the authorship of an apostle or disciple of the apostle, then it's canonical. He knows here that Swingley uh, doubts the apostolic authorship of the, the apocalypse or revelation, and therefore he feels free to be able to reject this testimonies. So there, there's a rationalistic bent, you see, not only with Luther, but also with Swingley, that you know we can determine what is scripture based on you know, what the historical data is and, and so on and so forth. But guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, like I said, I'm not really well studied in the New Testament canon, mm -hmm. but I believe that even those who doubted like the uh, authorship of James and things like that, they didn't doubt the canonicity of these books. They just yeah. were unsure right. of the authorship, like Hebrews. Yep. Yeah, you're right about that. Even remember, remember even Augustine, who uh, in his ret retractions, um, it comes to the conclusion that he doesn't believe that wisdom of Solomon is actually written by Solomon, but it doesn't change the fact that he believed it to be a canonical book that deserved to be in the Bible and as scripture. So yeah, I think that's the case with multiple fathers that even if they wonder who the author could have been, they don't deny whether or not it's a biblical book. I think, you, would you agree with that, David? Uh, sorry, I, I, I was just thinking about something. Can you? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me repeat it. Now, now, when we're talking about books like Hebrews, James, and others, despite many fathers not being sure as to the authorship, you don't find them outright rejecting whether or not they're scriptural books. Certainly, that's important. Certainly not. Certainly not. Uh, and even uh, I was just looking up uh, Amphilochius. Uh, he uh, here's Gallagher what he says he says since his list instructs Seleucus to accept only the four evangelists of Matthew Mark Luke and John we can suggest that he would classify other gospels as spurious like gospel oh, yeah. of Thomas I mean these lists are not really like uh you know decisive really you yeah. really need to look at the complex teaching of these fathers like the whole text everything they wrote I mean I I don't believe they really like rejected the canonicity their inspiration to be uh more precise yeah yeah very very good point there i think that um i think that that to to qualify that uh, particular point is very very important uh but the language here is, is, is very problematic for a protestant it really is and then we 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 come upon dr bacchus it's a very good book and, and in the particular chapter on the problem of canonicity dr bacchus says something very interesting the most famous reformers either condemned the book, Zwingli Luther, or ignored it, Melanchthon, Booker, Calvin. Only Bullinger attempted to make it suitable reading for the faithful, no doubt due partly to his encounter with the English refugees, whose enthusiasm for the book is well known and has been studied in detail by Richard Bauckham and others. So Luther Zwingli rejected, condemned it, and then ignored by Melanchthon. And, and we know that in a moment we'll read something. We know very well that um, I know what modern day Calvinist scholars try to say, but many are having none of it. Modern day Calvinist scholars will say, look, 
you know, it isn't that <laughs> Calvin avoided it. Had Calvin lived long enough, he would have written a commentary in it. But Calvin was able to write commentaries and pretty much everything else, but he never wrote it on Revelation. Many contemporaries to Calvin were of the mindset that he ignored it because he just didn't view it in a favorable way. So yet again, we've got a major problem because these are these are major figures in the in the Reformed world, major figures, and this presents a major problem, especially when you you continue reading. By the way, from the same author, the author tells us Coladon, who was a, um, a follower of Calvin and tries to kind of smooth things over, Coladon produced a commentary and therefore felt the need to convince his readers that he was not betraying his master, Calvin. He therefore claimed privileged knowledge, Calvin's real attitude to the apocalypse. He says, some good and erudite men of excellent doctrine are of the opinion that it was indeed Calvin who said correctly and wisely, following I know not what rumor about the book of Revelation and its author, that he had no idea what it meant and that its author was not only unclear but scholars were uncertain about who he actually was. I, on the other hand, remember very well and recall funny how sometimes Calvin happened to come across the text, sometimes, and some friends at his home, including myself, would discuss it. His opinion about this most holy book was quite different to what, what some have rumored after his death. I do not deny that when asked by some brethren, to read upon the apocalypse, either at school or in the church, to all the congregation, he replied that he could not understand it at all. In the same way, he left the final chapters of Ezekiel untouched in his holy lectures on that book. However, I do not doubt that had he had more leisure or had it been granted to him to live until today, we would have some very useful reflections on the apocalypse on the final chapters of Ezekiel and in other books of scripture set down by this excellent servant of God, really clearly softening the stance if many people are saying that he did not view it favorably. And this very follower of him says that Calvin simply didn't understand it. Well, we're encountering this very often, Gary and, and, and David, that I see very often, that the confusing nature of the book of the apocalypse has led many of them to either completely avoid it or outright reject it, that to me is problematic when you come to the table and whether or not you understand something from your own ability to comprehend it, that you then decide whether or not that book is a canonical book or not, that is a major problem to me. David, perhaps your thoughts on that. Right, right, certainly. I mean, look, when it comes to speculations like and really just giving your own subjective thoughts you can really just uh, <laughs> go down of a really bad rabbit hole we yeah. see this for example in Kajetan, right who who basically also rejected hebrews on yep. the basis of uh, uncertain or unknown authorship and but like it's it really if if you if you go down that rabbit hole you end up you can end up really rejecting even the the Torah <laughs> because, oh, yeah. or, or I don't know what. Uh, I, I mean, okay, maybe. No, yeah. no you because, can. You can. You come to the point where you say, "Hey, well, Moses could not have truly been the author," and you know, you go, you go down a dangerous rabbit hole. I agree, David. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Very good point there, Gary. Perhaps your thoughts. I find these 
it's problematic. What do you think? Yeah, same. I really don't have any much more to add than uh, what David just said. I mean, yeah. And, and and of course there are the like the um, like Luke right, uh, it's it said uh, Luke isn't I mean Luke penned the uh, the Evangelion but it's it's uh, I think Paul's right Paul's words right. or like right. like Mark's Evangelion or Peter's words like you know one can speculate all around about this yeah <laughs> you're not gonna solve the problem at the end of the day. No. By the way, I looked up. I looked up also Gregor Nazianzus. You did, okay. and he clearly uh, was holding uh, Revelation to its authority because he he, he regards it in a high esteem. In Oratio 42, 9, 29, okay. 17, 40, 45. So really, again, if you're just going by the list, <laughs> yeah. you got a problem. Yeah. Which very often we 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 encounter uh, that to be problematic when you go by list without actually looking um, as to how the list is being utilized by said father, and then how that particular father utilized those books as well. I think that that's another another issue. Uh, that good find there, David. David, let me ask you maybe, um, and I know I'm, I don't want to put you in the spot, you or Gary, but uh, are, are you aware, of Cyril, if he ever utilized uh, Revelation? Uh -huh. In any way, I, you know, I'm sorry, I don't want to put you in the spot of your, if you're aware or if maybe you're not aware. Um, off the top of my head, I, I don't, I don't know. Gary, any, are you aware? No, I believe there's a couple of passages in the catechetical lectures where, okay, um, they're not quotations, they're more allusions to, gotcha, yeah, Revelation. Okay. Right. Okay. But gotcha. but of course, if one expects to cite each and every book of the Bible, right? Right. Then, you, then I no mean, doubt. almost no church father you're gonna find you know quoting yeah. each and every one. So. Yeah, no doubt. And we when we don't we to be very clear, we don't want to we don't right. hold them to that particular. You don't hold to that standard, right? Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Very good point there. Very very good point. Now, one thing I did decide to, to include, I, I found it very interesting. Is, is um, uh, when you do get to uh. Francois Lambert, 1528, before the appearance of Luther's 1530 preface. Uh, Lambert is very extensive in his commentary, difficult to find, by the way, um, in the current form uh, that we have it in. Uh, but he does provide a full Reformation era commentary, 1528, which is six years after Luther's pretty powerful comments. And what I found very interesting in, in Francois Lambert's commentary on the apocalypse look at this uh a commentary that you would be hard pressed to find today among modern day protestants who flat out deny that uh that holy mary is in any way can any way be the figure of revelation 12. i found it fascinating i thought i'd toss it in that lambert does read it in a mariological manner as well he says if christ is her son it is true that mary is a portion of this woman that is of the most noble church. So incredible that in Revelation 12, which many early fathers viewed as multi-layered, which we agree it has multiple layers to the book of Revelation, many viewed it as Mariological as well. The very first complete commentary of the Reformation on the book of the Apocalypse, chapter 12, reads chapter 12 in a Mariological manner. He goes on to say, for to devour the son means to remove the true faith in his name. And indeed, Satan literally did all he could so that Christ, born of Mary, would be killed by Herod, 
When he noticed that the plan did not work, he did not rest until Jesus was killed by the Jews. After Christ rose from the dead, he stopped at nothing to suppress the faith in his resurrection and so render Christ useless to us. Incredibly, incredibly relevant that multiple Reformation-era commentaries, unlike modern-day Protestants, viewed the woman in Revelation 12 as Mary. Now, of course, they'll say it's the church, but they'll also say it's Mary as well. Yet you'd be hard-pressed to find that reading today. So yet another example of how Protestantism uh, just has all kinds of uh, evolutions. I'd love to get your thoughts on that, Gary. Pretty fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I wasn't familiar with this. Um, yeah. So who is Lambert? Uh, tell us a little bit about him, if you know. Yeah, so off the top of my head, I do have it. You know what, I'll pull it up. Right now, when David does begin speaking, I will pull it up because I do have a brief biography of Lambert, uh, but uh, not a very, very popular figure, but he was very well known for this particular commentary. So let, let me look it up. Okay, He was a reformer. Uh, his dates are 1486 to 1530. Let me see. Very early. Yeah, yeah, very, very early. <laughs> Incredibly early. So let me see. What else do we have of Lambert? Um, this is an excellent find, William. <laughs> I really have down. I thought it was good. Yeah, um, I thought it was a pretty good find. So yeah. he was known for having debated Zwingli. Uh, and he was uh, he was anti-Catholic. Well, a bit of surprise there, right? And he was the son of a papal official at Avignon. So he was a prominent Protestant reformer. And I think where he really got his most, where he really became most famous was, well, I don't think I know, was for the fact that he provided the very first Reformation era commentary on the apocalypse. Now, let me note one thing that maybe people are not aware of. Before Lambert, there were a few anonymous commentaries on Revelation, some of them very short, some of them just, you know, maybe a few paragraphs. Now, why is that the case? Multiple Reformation era scholars and multiple scholars of Lutheranism believe that people, as I said earlier, were very hesitant to write a commentary on Revelation because they were very well aware of the harsh comments made by Martin Luther on the book of the Apocalypse. Thus, it was not viewed very favorable until you get to a certain period where they begin to provide commentaries on, on the book of the Apocalypse. Thus, you eventually get to, and we will get to it in a moment, people will be pleased to see that we do include for them a reading of the 1530 preface of Luther. We want to be fair. They're going to say, William... David and Gary, you're reading the 1522 one, but Luther totally walked that back in his 1530 preface. No, he didn't. And we'll read the 1530 preface later on. Uh, but right now, we've got this in France, Francis Lambert. Um, and it, it truly is incredible what you see, because look at this. When the holy apostles and other fathers taught this faith with total sincerity, thus giving birth to Christ in others, he and his own try to take it away from the elect and are still trying to this day by every kind of subterfuge. Every time the church gave birth, the dragon tried to eat the offspring. What was it she gave birth to? A male son. Why add male? Is it not every son a male? Male is a symbol of, where did I got lost, of courage and strength. 
So when he adds male, it was as he was saying, the son will not be weak like the others. His strength is shown by the following sentence. Who will govern? Christ's iron rod is his unconquered word. With this rod, he was going to govern together with his ministers, all his nations, as has been told by the father in Psalm 2. So the classical reading in the book of Revelation has to be read that way, where we read of the child that will rule the nations with a rod of iron, hearkening back to that messianic psalm. The early reformers clearly and logically made the connection that if the child born of the woman of Revelation 12, the woman crowned in glory in heaven, if that child is the historical Messiah that will rule the nations with a rod of iron, hearkening this to the Psalms, well, then that woman has to also be in some way the historical mother of that child that will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Thus, in my opinion, you cannot eliminate the Mariological reading of Revelation 12. And we see it there in Francis Lambert. He's very clear about that. Even Leo Judd, who's a famous Swiss reformer from the early 1500s, he tells us, then the child was born, God's word became man, truth was victorious, falsehood was laid low, the devil's trick was found out by God in his wisdom and made known to the world. This child, he's commentating commentary in Revelation 12, the eternal word of God become man in the sacred bosom of the Virgin Mary, was accepted by God the Father in his mercy for all the sins of the world. That's his commentary in Revelation 12. He's talking about the birth of, of uh, our incarnate Lord and Savior. And he tells us, he includes the woman there, born in the sacred bosom of the Virgin Mary. So multiple, by the time we do get, and I only provided two, by the way, for the audience, uh, you know, we could have provided more. I only provided two. There are many more. But I find it incredibly fascinating, brothers, that by the time you do get commentaries in the Reformation, they're providing readings that today your modern-day evangelicals would probably cringe at. They probably would definitely not. I wouldn't. I guarantee you one thing, Gary and David. You walk into your local evangelical church, and they're not going to be preaching that from the pulpit, are they? No, I don't think so. No, certainly not. <laughs> certainly not. No, no. That to be fair, wanted to be fair. These are we really do. gems, William, you bring. Yeah, up. I, mean, I, I, think I really good. wasn't aware of this. <laughs> yeah, I think they're good. And I, I want to be clear They're, I think they're really good. Um, there are more. But of course, I think the point being that by the time you do get Reformation commentaries, um, you get readings that today, modern day Protestants, you know, they fight to the nail against. And they're readings that clearly the, ref the Reformed authors, they, they were aware that in the early church, there were a myriad of views. Many said, well, that woman is the church and Mary. There are dual views there. And you can have that. Because in the book of Revelation, even when we read about the Messiah ruling the nations with a rod of iron, that very same language is then applied to the believers. So if you can have dual imagery of the believers ruling with a rod of iron, like the Messiah, the singular figure, well, very well, you can have that dual imagery in Revelation 12 of it being an image of the church and Mary as well. 
we don't li- and here's the beautiful thing about being catholic we realize scripture is is, is incredibly supernatural and sacred Thus, dual imagery is no problem for a Catholic. You know, Gary, you've written a lot about the incredible nature of Scripture. Your, your incredible book, The Gospel Truth, really does hammer home that point. From your perspective, would you agree that Scripture is so incredibly rich that dual layers of imagery found in multiple books is perfectly fine and perfectly recognized by the early church? Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, especially Revelation and that type of literature. Yeah, no doubt, especially uh, the book of, of Revelation. David, uh, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I I, I basically agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, you I promise to... Oh, go ahead, brother, go ahead. Yeah, I just uh, was thinking about this, you know, sorry. Uh, as we see these, all these, uh, I mean... Really, like uh, I have to comment for these reformers, really commenting yeah. on on Mary and making this parallel, and how they clearly see Mary in the Book of Revelation. I have to really commend them. On the other hand, when you see these innovations, you know, like uh, on the uh, uncertain authorship and such these, I just want to tell the audience, you know, uh, you see even today many Protestants fighting against Unitarianism like arianism but the truth is that arianism perished in the ancient church uh, the church dealt with arianism unfortunately it reappeared right with the reformation you know and you really just have no authority apart yourself interpreting scripture as you want then you really end up in really and dangerous like positions and thoughts oh yeah yeah, just wanted to you say end, this. You end up in very, very deep and murky waters. I, I totally, I totally agree. I mean, look, the the problem being that even, you know, regardless of what my uh, Calvinist friends want to say, the fact that that Calvin had an aversion to even agreeing with the Nicene Creed, uh, you know, that tells me issues that he, you know, that that's problematic. Now I know my Reformed friends are going to come back and say, well, Calvin. You know, despite that, having issues with the Nicene Creed, he agreed with the theology behind it. Uh, I'm not so sure because, uh, you know, and that's a topic for a whole other day. Uh, the, the Christology of the Reformers very often you, you encounter it being problematic. You know, I, I have a lot of problems with the, with the Christology of Calvin, of, right. of, uh, of Francis Turretin. So when you abandon the early church and... Look, let me be clear, as Gary's pointed out many times in his books on the canon, which are fantastic, the church dealt with these problems early on. Right. You know, we, we had these controversies, right, David? Uh, right. We dealt with them. You know, Arianism, uh, Eutychianism, um, uh, I'm thinking of, of many others, Nestorianism, and on and on. Every kind of heresy you can think of, it was thrown at the church. The church dealt with it. Um, and then these heresies, they rear their heads later on again in history. And, you know, without a clear authority, a teaching authority, um, you know, you're not going to know how to answer these problems and you're going to fall into all kinds of errors. Would you agree with that, David? Right, right. And, you know, even like picking and choosing a few church fathers or lists, I yeah. mean, at the end of the day, the church father doesn't don't matter because yeah. when it comes to doctrine like baptismal uh, regeneration, <laughs> yeah, like 
even the ardent Baptists will agree that basically everyone from the early church is against them. Like the, if you don't find any father, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, no so if you're gonna appeal to the church, to the early church on this, why are you not gonna appeal to the early church on that? So, I mean, yeah. it's just inconsistent. It, it really comes down to picking and choosing what you wanna pick. Right. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Gary? It's kind of like cafeteria Christianity, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, uh, Again, I, I think you can see a rationalistic vein in there, you know, that it's yeah. just a matter of opinions. And wasn't it, uh, you know, that's what set Jesus apart from the scribes and the Pharisees was that uh, he spoke with authority, right? It wasn't just uh, matters of arguing. Mm -hmm. And it's it's sad that, you know, um, if you uh, take a, a rationalistic approach, right, uh, authorship, whether or not there's errors, things like that, then it just be, everything's reduced down to a level of argument. You know, whoever has the strongest argument wins. Yep. And is that what the Word of God's founded on? You know, no. Good point. Yeah. No, and and I have to be clear. Uh, if if whether or not a book is apostolic relies upon my intellect and my burning in the belly, I, I mean, uh, I'm gonna fail all the time. You know, I'm gonna mess up all the time. I'm a fallible, fallen human being, and I would be horrified at my congregation relying upon my inner feelings. I'd be terrified at that. I would not, and nowhere would I, never would I ever be uh, so arrogant as to want them to rely upon the inner burning in the belly for me. Because at the end of the day, that kind of an opinion, well, then why, why aren't the Unitarians right if they truly uh, feel that the interpretation of John 1, 1 is incorrect in apostolic Christianity. So then Christ ultimately is, is God, but he's created. He's a creature uh, elevated to the status of God as Paul of Samosata taught. Well, then there, you, you go, you get into all kinds of issues and all kinds of problems. If everybody is their own ultimate authority and if they abandon all sacred tradition and they abandon all kinds of uh, uh, the authority of the church, that, that to me is ultimately problematic. Wouldn't you brothers agree? Certainly. Now, I, and I, I told you all I was going to be fair, and, and, and I am very fair to, to my Lutheran friends because I know uh, a number of my Lutheran friends do tune in. I have a near and dear friend who, God willing, he will join us in the future. Uh, Mikhail is his name. Hopefully he will. He's a Lutheran scholar, and, uh, and he's shown interest to come and join us and talk about the canon and Luther in a very respectful manner. He's, the guy's a great guy. I know he's probably tuning in. And I told him, or he'll watch a replay. I told him to be very fair. And uh, provide the 1530 preface to Luther's commentary and revelation. Now, a lot of modern day scholars recognize the problem, the problems in Luther's 1522 preface, and they tend to kind of uh, gloss that over. And indeed, today, it is very difficult to find that 1522 preface because kind of erased from. Uh, from the minds of Lutheranism, and the 1531 is present. But even if you look at the 1531, uh, even though it is a lot softer, you, you, in my humble opinion, you can still find problems. Luther will tell you about Revelation. Because its interpretation is uncertain and its meaning hidden, we too have let it alone hitherto, especially since some of the ancient fathers held the opinion that it was not the work of St. John, the apostle, 
as is found in points to Eusebius. We talked about that earlier. And then look at this. We persist in this doubt. Now, for my Lutheran friends and my Reformed friends, despite the fact that his language is much softer, Luther persists in this doubt. He continues saying, we still are doubtful as to whether or not it was written by an apostle. But this should not stop anyone consider from considering it the work of St. John the Apostle or of whomever else he will. In other words, whoever else you think wrote it. Since, however, we would be gladly be certain, since, however, we would gladly be certain of its meaning or interpretation, we will give other and higher minds something to think about and also state our own ideas. So now he decides to provide what is one of the most horrific, tortured, <laughs> comment, brief commentaries that you're going to find. He, of course, as you know, will include uh, in the beast imagery, the papacy, uh, Islam, and all kinds of crazy things in his uh, very brief commentary. A lot of Lutheran scholars say, hey, they say he took advantage of that imagery and uh, really, really went down the polemical route. Whatever the case may be, from my reading, even though he's softer in this approach, he's very clear that he persists in doubt. Gary, I'd like to get your thoughts. Does the 1530 preface of Luther completely erase the problematic comments he made before? Yeah, um, that's a, you know, that's a really interesting question. Yeah, I know from uh, research in Lutheran history that the problem is you have these early doubts in the church. Mm -hmm. So how can you overturn those early doubts? You know, because later opinions obviously don't matter. Um, you're just left with the text and trying to work it out from there. Yeah. So it, it, it's kind of like the doubts are frozen in history and they really can't be removed because there's no nothing to impose that belief on the faithful because yeah. you don't have a teaching magisterium. Yeah, I, I agree with that. By the way, that's why uh, Lutherans have an open canon. Correct. You know, they never did shut the canon. Yeah, yeah and that's what uh, you did great series on this, by the way, Gary. And this is what also uh, Martin Chemnitz says, right? Like, yeah, yeah. He's, he's calling the uh, Tridentine arrogance, right? Like, yeah, he defended like, that idea. <laughs> like, that yeah. uh, the Tridentine church, uh, like the, uh, the fathers, right? council fathers are arrogant because they think they can decide right <laughs> the disputes of the early church uh, yeah. so that's why martin Chemnitz like labeled these <clears throat> uh new testament books like revelation second peter second third john so uh he, he labeled them in the same way as the deudro canon right yeah yeah no doubt and i think people I think a lot of people are unaware of that, and, and I really do. Look, uh, we heavily recommend you read uh, Luther, Chemnitz. Uh, you read these primary sources. Go and read Calvin um, to realize that we're not making things up. You know, we've, I, in fact, I barely read only a little fragment of a commentary of a scholar. Everything else we looked at firsthand material, you know, because that's what we do. We, we're not going to go to a Google forum or, or go to a, a radio show and get a snippet of somebody's comments offhand. No, we're going to go to the material, and we're going to put it right there for you to realize that the material we're putting forth, first-hand material, 
And when you do that and you look at that, in my opinion, really, you get the problems front and center. And I do not think, because I've I read it, by the way, I read it over and over. The preface in 1531, the 1531, uh, I read it. Uh, number one, despite the fact that Luther is now providing a very brief overview of Revelation, I wouldn't even call it a commentary, I'd call it a very brief overview, he does not walk back those other comments. Mm -hmm. And look at what he says in the beginning. The interpretation is uncertain, the meaning hidden, and we've left it alone until now and then. And yet again, he'll put the, uh, the, the jab of, uh early fathers some of them didn't believe that it was written by john but he doesn't, doesn't tell you that despite that they didn't reject the canonicity of it he'll leave that little detail out he'll also leave the words out of eusebius despite pointing you towards his ecclesiastical history with that in mind he'll tell you we persist in this doubt he still doesn't believe it to be apostolic he says but if, if anybody wants to believe it is you're free to and then he says if you want to believe whoever else you think wrote it you're free to believe whatever you want uh, whatever you want. And then he says, I'll give you my own interpretation. So not a glowing endorsement of the apocalypse in his final, in his final words on the topic, his final opinion on the book, in my opinion, I'd love to get your thoughts, Gary. Am I just reading into it? My opinion, it's not exactly a glowing endorsement, is it? No, <laughs> no, it's not. Um, it's not a rejection either, you right. know, and, I think Luther purposely does so, you know, sure. uh, because he really can't, you know, without yeah. summoning up some sort of authority. Uh, yeah. On his yeah. No, no, I agree. I agree. And I, I think, you know, at the end of the day, we can speculate all we want as to, oh, well, well, Luther walked them back because of the pressure or whatever. It doesn't matter. He does provide, and I want to be fair, because very often you'll only hear of the 1522 commentary. The 1531 is ambiguous as to whether or not uh, whether or not he's walking back any of the previous statements. He continues to persist in doubt, hmm. but now he does seem more favorable, even to the point of providing a brief overview of the book. But to me, the problem remains that Luther um, initially clearly rejects it, and multiple reformers have a problem with it, and some just outright ignore it, some outright reject it. Now, the, 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 the classical one to me uh, was, you know, there's no doubt here. You know, Zwingli doesn't leave any doubt for you. You know, he's not playing around. He tells you right out. It's not a book of the Bible. You know, he's not going to give you any flowery words. He'll tell you flat out, it's not a book of the Bible. Ultimately, to me, this to me highlights the problem you have when you do not have an authority an authority that can tell you what books comprise the canon of the Old and the New Testament. That's a major problem because any of our Reformed friends, at the end of the day, because of the controversy around this book, on what basis are they going to tell you? Well, we know for a fact that the book of the Apocalypse does belong in the Bible, other than really relying upon those early councils of the Catholic Church and the defense of Scripture, there really is no way of them being able to truly defend the canonicity of it. I'd love to get your thoughts on that, uh, David and then Gary. Yeah, and I also like the ending of that uh, last preface, uh, if you can scroll back, uh, yeah. where, where he says that we 
leave it uh, open and give other and higher minds something to think about. I mean, okay, yep. it's nice, it's nice thing, but you know, how many times we hear scripture interpret scripture? Okay, yeah. So, <laughs> right here, uh, Luther just don't, don't doesn't know what to what to do with the Book of Revelation. He says there's no way you can interpret it correctly. Yeah. I mean, you can think about it, you can bring your own ideas, but ultimately, yep. if you don't have this significant portion of the deposit of faith, which is sacred tradition, <laughs> which is yeah. the key to interpret right scripture. Then you're really just left with your own attitude, approach, and what you like and what you don't like. Yeah, no doubt. And and we 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 see that as a major problem today. Uh, Gary, uh, perhaps your thoughts. Yeah, um, yeah. I I was um, thinking about you know the persistent doubts about yeah. uh, Revelation's authorship. Uh, you know, the thing is, doubts may occur within certain regions, right? Yeah, and they might be because of like i said like the the maybe the influence of montanism or some other thing mm -hmm. may cause people to disparage or doubt a particular book but what's ironic is we actually get a clear understanding of the canon centuries later in the fourth fifth century when like augustine and others can survey the whole church and note that yeah there are some regions some isolated doubts here and there but when you look at it, the, you know, antiquity, ubiquity, consensus, hmm. we can speak with certainty that the, this is the canon. And so people may dissent from that, right? People could reject Revelation later on, like the, the Reformers. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, uh, when, you, when you have a historical, identifiable society, the church that makes law, uh, it doesn't matter right because uh we can rely on those that were there to make those decisions yeah i don't know if that makes sense or not but without a doubt exactly yeah no without a doubt it, it really does make sense and uh you know the the problem doesn't really it doesn't just end there you know there are um within catholicism there is no debate you're not going to debate whether or not that book is canonical uh at all um at all but we recognize even within eastern orthodoxy hmm. there are certain questions as to whether or not the book is canonical remember for a lot of our eastern friends uh, uh being liturgical that would uh, equate whether or not the book is canonical and uh, a lot of their scholars will tell you flat out it's not they will tell you that don't don't think that the answer is, is shut and closed there a lot of them will just flat out reject it a lot of them will flat out reject the Deuter canon. Now, I know a lot of my Eastern friends tuning in will say, hey, you know what? I believe it to be canonical and what have you. Okay, you do, but uh, there is no uniformity. There is not that uh, uh, unity that you think there is over there in Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, and a lot of them will reject it. Our Oriental Orthodox friends will flat out tell you they reject it. Uh, a near and dear friend of ours, David and myself, we speak with them often. We're in a group together with Subdeacon Daniel. Uh, great guy. He'll tell you great flat guy. out. No, yeah. great guy. He'll tell you flat out. No, we don't. We don't. We don't view it as canonical. We don't. So you come to the table, and, and you need to have an authority to be able to come to answers that are complex. And to be honest, Gary, 
I'm glad that these answers don't fall in my lap. You know, I'm glad the church has dealt with this long before William Albert came around because I could have made, made a mess of it. And we can see that once you get to the time of the Reformation, they made a mess of canonical issues. So I'm glad that we have that authority uh, to be able to rely upon uh, that authority that the, the church fathers are so astute in holding up and, and, and so meticulous in defending that biblical canon. Uh, yeah. per perhaps your thoughts on that, Gary? Uh, yeah, I, if it comes down to individual persons, you can always make mistakes. I mean, Luther almost admits that right there with the higher oh, yeah. minds comment. Oh, yeah. And even recently, um, in fact, this is probably something we should have clarified at the beginning. It just occurred to me when you're talking about uh, Carthage accepting yeah. revelation. Right. Recently, there is there is uh, like a, a tempest in a teapot where an individual was assist, insisting that Carthage rejected revelation based on uh, actually a, a mistake by a prominent scholar. Yeah, no doubt. And that, um, if I'm correct, that scholarism, uh, a friend of mine, uh, uh, Lee, Lee McDonald, yeah. um, and uh, clarified, by the way, for the audience, you may, may be wondering, well, hey, did you get in touch with Lee McDonald? Yeah, I did. And Lee McDonald admitted that was incorrect. He admitted it. But that is where we come to the important thing, Gary and David. And you both know what I'm getting at. You've got to, I've got no problem reading great books. But ultimately, you need to go to firsthand source material. Exactly. Because there is no author or scholar out there that is perfect. These scholars make mistakes. Uh, they don't walk in water. Merely having a PhD, as you all know, doesn't mean you walk on water and you're perfect. Very often we find ourselves correcting errors that they make. Uh, so you need to go to first-hand source material. And if you are unable to, like the gentleman that made that atrocious error, then go to an individual that can help you out. Humble yourself. Because that is a pretty strong error. That's a powerful one. That's a, a messy one. Because I remember, Gary, when you... You heard that. You immediately went. You went to everywhere you could think of. You're like, maybe there's a variant, you know, maybe. Yeah, right. right. Remember that? We were on the phone. Like, maybe yeah. yeah. For those that aren't familiar, Lee McDonald, when he made a list of the uh, books affirmed at Carthage, I think Carthage 3, uh, he accidentally omitted Revelation. Right. And uh, and so, and that uh, person picked up on that and made a big deal about how, see, these councils are all in error because they yep. they rejected a canonical book so yeah so william i went to the sources i looked everywhere i thought maybe yep. there i was relying on a variant or secondary yep. you know something yep. and then i went to you right yep, yep. <laughs> i'm like william did you did you notice this and and what was your finding it was the same thing right exact same thing so i said you know what let me reach out to dr mcdonald let me reach out to him incredibly gracious gentlemen incredibly gracious by the way um for protestants the book that we just put out i put out together with father coppice he endorsed it he endorsed it so he looked over the information positive information in the deuterocanon and he heavily endorsed it and uh, dr mcdonald admitted like anybody should admit when you make an error that it was an error uh, and and there's nothing wrong with admitting that and mm -hmm. look you got to go to first-hand source material. That's important. Anytime you're doing work that you want to put up front as scholarly 
book or a book, even with any kind of important information, it's important, you know, to go right back to the original material. Isn't that correct, David? Exactly. And of course, sometimes it's very difficult to first-hand source sure. materials. Many of them are very expensive or really yeah. just out of stock or you cannot no get doubt. it. And that's why this channel is here. So, and Amen. that's why I really appreciate this because as you started this channel, really like it's it's massive, right? Really, I mean, the, the things are presented. And of course, that's the pur purpose of this channel, like really yeah. present go to the original if, if it's possible of course sometimes you cannot but if you can you need to verify yeah 100 percent. i think that it's a fantastic note to to uh to conclude on uh gentlemen it's been great being with you all today uh but you know before we wrap up i'd like to give you both a chance to you know, just tell the audience what you've been working on we'll be live again soon god willing much more often uh, but I'd love to give you all a chance to just plug in. What have you been working on? Do you want to point the audience towards anything? Or do you want to tell the audience, hey, pretty soon we're going to be getting together for an incredible number of shows. Anything on your mind? I'll let you go first, David, uh, brother, and I'll give David the, uh, Gary the last word. Yeah, so I'm working on multiple things, actually, <laughs> simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, some of them are finished already. Some of them I'm still prepping. And uh, usually what I like are uh, the cont controversial things, you know, and also the areas where maybe you can say even scholars uh, are divided. And yeah. and again, <laughs> as you said, William, we need to go to the first and primary source. So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I was trying to do. Yeah. Uh, the couple of uh, days and weeks now. So uh, hopefully we'll meet again soon. And I'm very, very happy to present present the stuff. And uh, I want to thank you, William, for this great presentation. I learned a lot, and I really mean this uh, honestly. It was great, and I, I really appreciate your work. It was, it was really it, fantastic. It was a blast being with you today, brother. And also, Gary, the videos how you put them like almost every week i really really appreciate it i'm i'm always looking forward to it i really don't know how you can find besides all the other things you need to do a family and everything else and and while you're working on books and you too william i mean uh really 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 good stuff you're putting out thank you brother but i'll be honest uh i i just really really the ability to put this stuff out is because we all support each other. We're always picking each other's brains. Uh, it's really, really incredible being together with both of you. Just great. Uh, and I'd be honest, today when I had the show planned, uh, I was the most relaxed I'd been in ages because I said, I, I got two of my closest brothers that I'm going to be able to uh, talk with. And it just had a great time uh, talking with you all. Uh, before I give Gary the final word, I want to tell the audience one thing that I've been working on. And I haven't even told David or Gary yet, but I will be releasing, God willing, hopefully in a week. It does take time because I'm compiling a lot of stuff and I've had me to translate a few things that aren't in English yet. But I'm working on a mega video on the reading of Romans 3, the oracles of God, the way that particular Greek word is used throughout history and the patristic interpretation of that. Very difficult to find the patristic interpretation of Romans 3 on that. There are a few texts that are not in English. So just trying to work on that, throwing that together. And I think the audience are going to be incredibly edified. 
Gary, brother, uh, anything on your mind you'd like to just point the audience to or plug? Yeah, I'm working on my book for, for Emmaus Road Press on the Messiah. So God willing, I'll get that done in a couple of months. Do you have a title yet? Do you have a title yet? Not yet. No. Okay. And okay. Uh, and another manuscript as well. And also a, a really big scholar, academic level article. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. That's kind of on the back burner right now. Um, what else? Oh, you know what? I want to give a shout out to Shane Kepler. Oh, who's yeah. in the comments section. He's a great author. He's he has a, a okay. book on Hebrews and, and other books as well. Wow, okay. level but really really good stuff. So guys, check out his stuff. Uh, Shane, if you're still with us, maybe in the comments section, give your uh, website. And uh, yeah, very cool. I did not know that. Very track. very cool. Yeah, but yeah. So I, I've been busy, and then on top of that, trying to crank out some videos. So I appreciate the live stream, guys, because I only have to do a video this week. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, no doubt. And for the audience who may be wondering, we've already been releasing, and they're already on the channel, videos in Spanish. So direct your, your Latin-speaking family members to come check them out. Multiple videos. Remember, when I put videos out, I then put out a version in Spanish as well. So I've got multiple videos in the channel and multiple coming soon on the Christological prophecies and shadows in the Deuterocanon in English and in Spanish. So show it to your uh, your Latin American or just uh, Spanish-speaking family members. I think they'll be able to get a lot out of it. Yeah, and one thing, too, keep an uh, eye out. We're going to have David Preston on the channel. Yeah, we are. Who Without is a, a King James-only Protestant who accepts the Deuterocanon. Yep. So that would be a really interesting conversation with him. No doubt. And we're going to also bring, with all of us together, I spoke with uh, Subdeacon Daniel, of Oriental Orthodoxy, he's also going to bring, uh, if I'm correct, a Coptic Orthodox uh, canon, not, excuse me, Coptic Orthodox scholar that wants to talk about the canon. We got a lot planned for all of you all, a lot planned. So do us a huge favor. It helps with the algorithm if you hit the like, share, subscribe, but flood the comments down below. We don't care if you only put a thumbs up, a heart, or whatever. Flood them so the videos can become more visible for the audience. You'll help the channel grow. Look, the channel is growing because of you. You are the reason that our channel has grown and gotten as popular as it has. And we are incredibly grateful. Brothers, I had a great time with both of you. I look forward to being back with you both. And the audience, God bless all of you all. Have an incredible Lent. Don't forget to fast. Don't forget to fast. God bless all of you all. Brother Gary, Brother David. Look forward to being back with you all again soon. God bless. Bye-bye.